following is a presentation of Cornerstone Bible Church in Virginia Beach. For more information on Cornerstone, as well as additional sermon downloads, please visit cbcvirginia.com. All right, well, we're in week three of our journey through the book of Hebrews. Turn with us there, if you will. Today we're in uh, part, part three, like I said. Got one more week. Should be able to finish out next week. Uh, again, we're taking a real quick trip through the book of Hebrews. Um, hopefully it's been helpful to you just to see things all put together kind of on a, on a big scale as opposed to just taking, uh, taking a real microscopic view of it. My, my goal is ultimately that if you were to then go back and study uh, here the book of Hebrews in the future, that it'll, you'll have a framework kind of a big picture look so that when you study some smaller pieces, you'll be able to put them together, put, uh, put those pieces together. All right, so our plan is going to be the same as we've done for the last couple of weeks. Um, I'm going to have Pietro read for us, my sidekick for this Hebrews thing. Um, he's going to read. Uh, we read chapter 7 last week. This week we're going to read chapter 8, 9, and 10. So Pietro's going to read, and then we'll pray, and then we'll jump into this last section. Heavenly Father, this is really good news. We want to embrace it, and we want to live in light of it. Because we're sinful people, there's no reason why any one of us could stand before your presence. And yet that's the very thing that you've given to us and your Son, Jesus Christ. You've granted access. So we rejoice in that. God, help us to grasp the significance of this today, and help us to live properly in response to that. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Um, I don't know if there's actually a clock back there. Um, I can go all day, but you guys don't want me to go all day, so I don't know if, if there's an iPad or something that has, only has a clock. Yeah, that's all right. All right. Well, I'm just going to check my phone then, so uh, I'm, not, I'm not playing Tetris or anything. <laughs> all right. So here's a quick review of where we've been um, in the book of Hebrews. I got it uh, just highlighted here up on the, uh, the screen. We've got three major sections. That first one is talking about Jesus. Uh, essentially, at the beginning of the book, God says, I have spoken to you. I've given you a message in my son. So the first section there in uh, 1, 4 to 13 is Jesus is our great prophet. The second section, which we have uh, broken into two parts uh, last week and this week, we're talking about Jesus as our great high priest. Um, that actually does break pretty conveniently in two parts. Um, which we'll, we'll talk about in a little bit. Uh, but that's through the end of chapter 10. And then in chapter 11 to 13, the author kind of wraps it up. Um, for now, I'm again, I'm just using that word promise because it's going to talk about that which we're looking forward to inheriting and receiving uh, if we hold fast. So that's an overview of the whole book uh, really quickly. Again, there in the prophet, Jesus, uh, under that section, the first section, through basically through, the, through chapter 4, Jesus is the Son of God. He's sitting at the right hand of God and is the heir of God, um, the one who will rule, rule. Second chapter is Jesus, the son of man. He's identifying with us in our humanity. And then there's a warning in chapters three and four, essentially, um, the four is broken up in about half. But there's that warning with five exhortations of this is how you're to live in light of that. Okay, so then in part one that we studied last week or didn't quite finish, we were supposed to get through last week. 
uh, we have, first of all, a similarity, Jesus' similarities to other priests. So first, the author says, hey, I want you to understand Jesus really is a priest. If you didn't under- look at him and, and obviously see, oh, he's a priest, then you need to understand that he actually is a priest. Then the author takes a, takes a, a bit of a digression or tangent. I mean, that's what we call it, but it really serves his purpose of saying, hey, listen, you um, are on the verge of maybe not listening well. You're on the verge of being immature, and I want to I exhort you, I want to challenge you to listen well, listen diligently so that you uh, are able to comprehend and grasp the significance of this message that I'm about to tell you. And the significance is I want to tell you about Jesus, who's the priest like Melchizedek, uh, because there's some significant differences between that and the Levitical priests. So today we're actually going to finish. Uh, Pietro didn't read it. We read it last week, but um, in the interest of time, we're going to cover chapter 7. Uh, today, talk about Jesus, who's like that priest of Melchizedek. And then we're going to go into the second part here. Whoops, that went too fast. Uh, we have Jesus as the, our great high priest who brings better benefits to us as uh, the priest of a new priesthood, in that he's got better promises, better sacrifices, and at the end of the day, you can summarize that by better access to God. Okay, so that's where we're going today. Let's see if we can get that clear. Thanks. All right. So there's a transition. I, I, I want to get to uh, chapter 7. I want to start there. But really quickly, just look at the end of chapter 6. We didn't uh, really spend much time on it. Verses 13 through 20, we have a transition period where Jesus is, or the, sorry, the author is bringing us into this new discussion that he's going to talk about. And he introduces three key concepts that serve to wrap up this last statement of chapter 6 and get us into this new section. So the last word that he has there in verse 12 is that I want you to be people who are not sluggish or hear, sluggish hearers. I want you to listen well, but I want you to be imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Okay, so now he's going to give us an example. Okay, I just told you I want you to be like someone who inherited the promises through faith and patience. An example would be this guy Abraham. So Abraham was given a promise by God. He had a lot of difficulties, a lot of time passed, but he believed God, and God eventually gave that, allowed him to receive that promise. We're, we're also going to see that in chapter 11 uh, more when we study the, the, these people and their faith. He mentions, too, that Abraham received a promise uh, from God, and it was a promise that was given to him um, just like in, in chapter 4, verse 1, there's this promise of rest. Uh, Abraham is an example of what we just talked about. One, again, he had difficulty and he had um, the challenges of many years, but he was able to receive that. <clears throat> um, Abraham himself is a transition point because we're going to see in, the, in this story with Melchizedek, Abraham was basically the other key component there. So we're bringing up Abraham for as we get into that. And then also there was an oath uh, or God swearing through uh, a kind of a unique ceremony that God, God would actually do this for Abraham. So there, there's a, that promise is accompanied by an oath, which is a divine confirmation. God saying, hey, look, I'm not just going to tell you that. I'm also going to confirm this with me basically legally swearing and, again, kind of a unique cultural uh, instance, I'm going to divinely confirm that this is going to happen, and then we see that happening. In the, in the section that's coming up, we're going to see that, that God also has given an oath to his son 
that accompanies his new promise, uh, the, the new covenant that he brings. And at the end here, we see a couple nautical terms, but he's, again, exhorting his people to hold fast to the hope that they have in Christ. So he points to the idea that, that uh, we are greatly encouraged to hold on tight to the hope that we have. This hope is, in, is like an anchor for us. Uh, so obviously that's a ship with the anchor cast into the, the seabed. There's also the idea here that with Jesus as a, a forerunner. So I've heard it said that in what they would do in these days is they'd actually take the, take the, the lower boat, put the anchor in it if the, the ship couldn't actually quite reach the harbor. And they would row into that harbor and throw the, throw the anchor into that harbor so that the anchor is holding in the calm sea and is, is firmly attached and able to hold that ship, even if the ship is still waiting a little bit outside the harbor. So the, the, this is this nautical picture of how Jesus is holding us fast in the high place, in God's very presence. And that is a great hope that will hold us securely as we hang on to that. Okay, so that's where we're, le- that's where we're ending with chapter 6, and we're going to go into uh, chapter 7. Uh, turn really quickly, if you will, to Genesis chapter 14. There's a, uh, there's a really short instance or rec- record of this guy, Melchizedek, and uh, it's worth us reading it really quick. It's really the first and last time that we see this guy, Melchizedek, uh, other than a couple quotes in the in this book of Psalms, which are actually quoted in, in Hebrews. So to set the stage really quick, we've got Abraham and Lot. Uh, again, we don't have time to, set, to fill in the whole story. There's just so many details here. But Abraham and Lot, God has blessed them. They're living in the land of uh, Israel, which we call it now. And they're down kind of the south end near Sodom and Gomorrah, as we learn later. Um, and they just, God has blessed them so much that they've got to separate. There's just not enough room for both of them. So Abraham magnanimously says, hey, look, you pick, you go where you want, I'll go the other way, but we just, we just can't stay here. There's just not enough room. So Lot goes one way, he goes over to Sodom. Abraham goes his way, takes his own land there. And what happens is there, there's this, some sort of war between some of the kings. And again, we see, we think of kings as like the monarch of, Great Britain or something like that. But it's, it's more of just like the, the chief of a city-state, if you will. So these kings kind of get together. They have this conflict. And in the process, Lot is caught up in that. So again, Lot is Abraham's nephew. And Lot and all his stuff are taken and somewhere. And Abraham apparently is so rich that he actually has his own elite personal security force and decides he's going to go um, fix it. So he goes out and whoops up on those kings and brings back Lot and all his possessions and all the other possessions that the kings took from everybody else and brings them back. So in, that, in this instance, he's on his way back. If you look at verse 17 in Genesis 14, it's going to pick up the story there. It says, Abraham, after, after his return from the defeat of this guy, Cheddar Loamer or whatever, and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shaveh, that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, okay, here's our guy. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abraham by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. Blessed, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. 
And the, and the king of Sodom said to Abraham, or Abram at that point, I'm sorry, uh, give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abraham, Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. All right, so that's pretty much the first and last that we know of Melchizedek. That, that's it. Very, not much is recorded about him. So Melchizedek is one of the kings in this region. The author points out uh, the meaning of his name and then doesn't really do much with it. Melchi is just Hebrew king. Zedek is righteousness, king of righteousness. He's king of Jerusalem. Um, again, Shalom or Jerusalem, Shalom is peace. So he's the king of Shalom or king of peace. And again, the author mentions this, but he doesn't really tease it out. Okay, so we know virtually nothing about this guy, like how he became a priest or why he's a priest. We don't know his ancestry. We don't know where he came from. All we know is what we just read. So come back to Hebrews chapter 7. Just as an overview really quick, the first 10 verses, God is gonna, uh, the author here is going to talk about who this guy is and his significance. In the last half of the chapter, the last 18 verses, the author is going to talk about how Jesus, is, as a priest, like Melchizedek, is, con con is contrasted with the Levites and their priesthood. Okay, so there's a, a couple main ideas here in, in these first 10 verses. First of all, Melchizedek is said to be without father, without mother, and without genealogy. All right, so on the one hand, in the ancient Near East, you could say this about somebody if, for example, if they said he was without father. That means you were basically illegitimate. If you said somebody was without mother, again, it doesn't mean literally they did not have a mother. It meant they were of low birth. But the third statement here, I think, is the key one that helps us understand what the author is trying to do. He's trying to show that there's no genealogy. So back then, that was an important deal to establish your right to rule or reign generally for a king. In this case, what he's doing is he's showing that Melchizedek has no qualification to serve as a Levitical priest. Okay, because as we're going to go, as we get into the chapter, you have to be of Aaron's line. You have to be a Levite. But he's not. He's, he, that's his main point. There's... No qualification here. He is not able to serve as a priest there. And yet, he's still a priest of the Most High God. Okay? Now, there's really a lot of questions about this person. Uh, there's some, like we've just read, and then even a couple, uh, couple verses down, the author says, this person continues forever as a priest. What we need to do is we need to realize that the author is making some arguments from silence. Okay, so we don't need to conclude that this guy is somehow some eternal being that, you know, if you, if you found the right corner of the universe somewhere, he's out there still doing his little priestly thing. That's not the idea. The idea is, in the literature that we have, nothing is recorded about his genealogy. So these statements are not literal. They're literary. They're not in the text, and so they are, the author runs with it with an argument from silence. Now, again, if you look down a little bit farther, you see that uh, in verse chapter th uh, verse 3, 
He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days or end of life. Again, he, it doesn't mean he's an eternal being. It just, it's not recorded. But resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. And that's one thing to keep in mind, too. Jesus doesn't resemble Melchizedek. Melchizedek resembles Jesus. He's not sub- Jesus is not somehow subordinate to this person. So there, we really, like a lot of people get worked up about, well, is this a pre-incarnate um, appearance of Jesus? I really feel like we don't have to do that. Again, the author's not trying to give us a little literal picture of a guy who is somehow eternal, didn't, you know, didn't have a father or mother, etc. So God divinely orchestrated that this guy, Melchizedek, was a priest and a priest of the Most High God. I don't, we don't know how, we don't know why, but he was. God had him, and he came and interacted there with Abraham. And the second point, then, that we have is that you see on a couple accounts the author trying to demonstrate that because he is blessing Abraham and because Abraham is paying tithes to him, this guy is greater than Abraham. Okay, so by implication... Anybody who comes after Melchizedek and is a priest in his line is going to be better than anybody who comes from Abraham's line. So there's, there's two main points there. Melchizedek and anybody in his order is outside of the Levitical order and is greater than the Levitical order. Okay, so there's a lot of details here, but this is the, that's the main point he's making. Those are the two main points he's making. So if Melchizedek is, great, is a greater priest than anybody who comes in the Levitical line, then, of course, if Jesus comes and he's in this line of Melchizedek, then he is also going to be greater than the Levitical priest. Now, again, we don't use the word priest a lot. It's not something that, you know, you're going to go and talk to your coworkers about, you know, on Tuesday. It's probably not going to come up. The whole idea is... Again, we're, we just cannot spend the time on our quick trip through Hebrews. We cannot spend the time to go back to the Old Testament and investigate all these different things. But God had set up a system whereby people could access God. Now, on the one hand, we are used to our freedoms in Christ, and, and some of that seems a little bit rigid and maybe ri- ritualistic. But on the other hand, you have to realize that was extremely gracious of God. It was so Amazing that God would reveal himself to mankind and say, hey, this is how you can know me. Okay, I, there, one of the, I think one of my favorite moments in seminary was when I read some, um, nebu, uh, some uh, quote from people out in the, the ancient Persians and in Babylon. That there was some, somebody had written some inscription saying, God, we don't know who you are. We don't know where you are. We don't know how to address you. We don't know how to please you, but here's something, basically, I hope it helps. You know, here, listen to me. God has been gracious to reveal how to know him. So on the one hand, we say there's law in the Old Testament, grace in the New Testament, but there's grace there in the Old Testament for God to reveal himself. And so, again, we should see how much better is it when God sends himself, he sends his son for us to see who he is a full and complete version of his message. Okay, so now in this, the last part of, this, of chapter 7, we see the question that the, the author is turning to. Why would there be a need for a new priest? 
a new priest like Melchizedek to come along when we already have a system set up under the law? The basic answer comes down to, it, he repeats his thought a couple times to show you how important it is. The law could never bring perfection, and that's why there needed to be something else. And he's going to tease out this thought through the rest of the chapter. It's easy to miss, but the author is talking about the, um, just, just catch this. The author is talking about the events that he's described over in chapter 1. So if you, go, if you go back real quick to chapter 1, you see in verse 4, it says, having become, um, I'm sorry, in verse 3, he talks about who Christ Jesus the Son is. After making purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, right hand of the majesty on high. And that's where we're, we're sort of picking up our story right now with um, this quote here. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. That's when these things are taking place. God says, you are my son, today I've begotten you. Again, it doesn't mean I just birthed you. It means you are my heir. You're going to sit on the throne. You're going to rule. At the same time, and we learn this in chapter 5, verse 5, the same time he says that, when Jesus ascends and sits down at the right hand of God, he says, also, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So don't miss that. First, the author is going to show that Jesus is not like the priests who descended from Aaron. And then he's going to show how these new arrangements are really superior to the old arrangements. Um, he isn't really, he isn't a priest, again, like we study, we just saw with Melchizedek. Melchizedek doesn't have the qualifications to serve as a Levitical priest. He's not in that line, doesn't have the genealogy, the pedigree for it. And Jesus doesn't either. But he is able to serve as, uh, by virtue, rather, of his indestructible life. In other words, uh, he died, was raised again, and is now exalted at the right hand of God. The better to serve as a high priest for his people. That's what qualifies him to be a priest. It's not that he has the right genealogy. He actually has an indestructible life um, or lives forever. Because of this new and greater and different priest that has arisen, we have a new system for relating to God. That's one of the points that's being made in this chapter, that there wasn't perfection in the old Levitical system, so God declares Jesus to be the son, or rather to be the priest after the order of Melchizedek, and when he does that, he's also indicating, oh, by the way, I'm bringing this new system into place because we have a totally new priesthood that's going to help us relate to God in a different way. So with this new priesthood under Jesus, we have a better hope through which we draw near to God. Because we can actually be made perfect, we have a much greater hope, and we can really actually draw near to God. Uh, two more things at the end of this chapter are highlighted as advantages under this new priest. Abraham's promise was accompanied by an oath. And now we see that Jesus and his new priesthood was accompanied by an oath. Jesus, or God, swears to him, you are a priest after the order of Melchizedek. Now, again, it's a little interesting for, for us to, because we're not sure exactly, um, you know, we wouldn't really do the things this way. Some, some interesting things are happening. But at the end of the day, what this is signifying is it's utter reliability. God is confirming this with his oath. He's confirming Jesus legally by swearing that he's, of, he's like this priest. 
The fact of the oath makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. Um, this is actually the first mention of the word covenant. He's mentioned a couple times in this chapter that a new system, a new way of doing things is being brought about. But this is, this is when he uses this first, first uses this word covenant. Um, and it also, it brings us as, as kind of like a springboard as it points forward to what we're going to cover in chapters 8, 9, and 10. Because um, he's going to talk all about the covenant and all that it brings to us. No, the other advantage that we get here with this high priest is his permanence. He lives forever because of his indestructible life. As said earlier, Jesus continues a priest forever. Because he always lives to intercede for his people, he's able to save them and save them completely. Okay, so at this point, this is actually the halfway point in our study of Jesus as our great high priest. Now, the last couple of chapters are going to go a lot faster, so bear with me. But uh, at this point, the idea of Melchizedek it drops out. If you do just a simple search for the word Mel- the name Melchizedek, you don't see it the rest of the, the book because he's highlighted the fact that we have such a high priest. In fact, if you look at chapter 8, verse 1 says, now the point of what we're saying is that we have such a high priest, okay? So we have this high priest. Now I want to tell you about the things that this high priest brings to the table. I want to tell you how, you know, the benefits and the blessings that we get under this guy as opposed to what we had under the previous guy, a system for the Levites. Now, again, just to show you how the book is structured, in chapter 8, we're going to get a quote from Jeremiah 31. In Jeremiah 31, God spoke through the prophet Jeremiah and promised them, hey, I'm going to, I'm going to make a new covenant with you in the future, and Pietro read it. There's um, the, the promises of establishing a new covenant with the house of Israel, the house of Judah, not like the covenant previously. Um, this is the covenant that I will make with them. If you're looking at in chapter 8, I'm in verse 10. This is the covenant that I will make. I will put my laws in their minds. I will write them on their hearts. I will be their God. They shall be my people. They shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all, they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, for I will be merciful toward their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. So he quotes this this passage from Jeremiah 31, this prophecy, and then Pietro also read in chapter 10, he quotes a kind of a shortened version of it, but he quotes Jeremiah 31. And in so doing, he kind of bookends his discussion about the better promises, the new covenant that Jesus is bringing because he's now our, our new priest after the order of Melchizedek. So don't, don't miss that. Um, again, that's, I, I find those things helpful to me when I see that the author is purposely framing his discussion by quoting repeated words or quoting the same book of Scripture. That helps me, as I'm going to study later, I'm going to be able to understand, okay, i got to put these, these thoughts together. These sections better go together because the author has purposely shown us that they do. Okay, notice at the beginning of this chapter here, we have the contrast between that which is earthly and that which is in heaven. So the first thing we see is the contrast that Jesus, as a high priest after the order of Melchizedek, is not in just a copy, not just the shadow, but he's in the real temple, the real sanctuary where God's presence actually dwells, where God is enthroned on high in heaven. So Jesus is not in some type, in, in a picture but he's in the real thing. He's up in heaven 
there. So there's that contrast there. And then in the last half of the, ver- of the cha- chapter 8, he's just focusing on quoting this, uh, this, this verse from, from Jeremiah 31. And the whole point is, these are the promises. These, this is what the new covenant is brought for to us. Two, there's kind of two main things here. There's completely, complete forgiveness of sin now uh, under the new covenant and the ability to really know and please God in a direct way. So then here in chapter 9 and 10, we're going to talk about this idea of complete forgiveness of sins. All right, so we are moving quick. That's chapter 8. Let's look at chapter 9. All right, the big picture for chapter 9 is that we've, the author is going to put forward a couple types or pictures, if you will, and then show how Jesus is the completion of that. So everything that was set up in the Old Testament was not just a haphazard oh, I think this is a good way to do it. No, God was very clear in showing and telling Moses, this is what you need to do, and this is how you should arrange everything, and these are the direct and clear commandments and stipulations and regulations for how we're going to do this thing because it pointed forward to what Jesus was going to be and do and and who he is. So first of all, it talks about just the details of uh, the, the, the most holy place, um, the, the details with the Levitical priests um, who would enter into the holy places regularly, but then once a year, the high priest is the only one who's going to actually go into the presence of God, offering blood and offering a sacrifice for himself and for, for the sins of the people. Now, again, remember, this is extremely gracious of God to reveal a way for his people to know him. I mean, on the one hand, um, there's a reminder as you see this, this holy place that's set apart and you can't go there. Like, there's a reminder that God cannot be accessed. But on the other hand, there's that access has been granted in some way. Um, and that is extremely gracious of God to have done that. How much more when we get to what Jesus brings to us to see that he actually brings direct access The significant, one of the other significant points here in verses uh, 1 to 10 is that these gifts and sacrifices could really never penetrate the heart. Uh, they could never get to down to that conscience level. They're, they're external. They, they, they can cover your sin, but they're not going to remove that. And they're not going to give you that clean conscience, that complete removal and complete uh, forgiveness of sin is going to be able to do. Um, the high priest, again, would, would be the only one who would go in once a year um, and offer the sacrifice. And again, what's ironic is that, on the one hand, there is a way to have access to God, but it also served as a reminder that there was no direct access. In verses 11 through 14, though, when Jesus comes, he goes into the true or the perfect tabernacle, the one in heaven. He takes his own blood. He secures eternal redemption. And now, instead of just being outwardly clean, we're truly cleaned and cleansed in our consciences. This is what Jesus is able to do. And then don't miss this, this wording here at the end of chapter, um, in chapter 9, verse 14. At the end, he tacks on this little saying, Jesus has purified our conscience from dead works, and now we're free to serve the living God. Now, I think we end up throwing around this term, serve God, really flippantly. But don't, don't miss the fact that this is priestly language. Like, he's, he's talking about 
people who are serving before God as, as a priest. Now, I mean, we, we know that we can live our lives for God and serve God, and like that's still a, you know, we, we, that's a flippant phrase we use. That's still true. But don't miss the fact that there's also implications here for, for people coming, accessing God, coming before him and serving before God, just like a priest would. Because that's what Jesus allows us to do. He's our high priest, but he's also secured direct access for us. Another, a related key point there is that, acts, that God is not accessed only by a priestly class of people or professionals. Uh, in our day, and what we're familiar with is like pastors or uh, you know, teachers. We don't have to rely on those people to get us access to God. We go right in, directly in. See how much greater this is? I mean, yes, the Old Testament, the old law was gracious. We could access God in it in an indirect way, but now we have this great direct way to go and access God. We can just go right in. Obviously, we need to not fail to, uh, we need to make sure we don't fail to take advantage of that. In uh, verses 15 through 17 in chapter 9 here, the author plays with the, the meanings of the word uh, covenant or will a little bit because he's been using it, one, in the sense of covenant as in like the uh, laws and regulations, if you will, that, that, that define a relationship between two parties. Now he's going to talk more on the same word, but it's, it's more in the meaning of what we would say a will, like someone dies and he has a will, and then because he died, that will is now into effect. That's exactly what he's saying here. It's the same word, but there's a couple meanings, and he's going to play with both of them. So for a second, he takes a, takes a minute and says, okay, I want you to inherit what is promised in Jesus. But you're not going to get it unless there's a death so that the will can then be executed. And what he's showing, he's just making a brief point here. Jesus' death allows the, that will to be executed and allows us to then receive the promises of that inheritance that we have in Christ. All right, we're, I know we're flying through this here. Um, we get to verses 18 to 22. The author is going to go back to a type and show how it pictures Christ. So he talks about the ceremonies that inaugurated the first covenant, the first tabernacle there in the Old Testament. Uh, we, his conclusion is that it was all purified with blood and that apart from that shedding of the blood from the animals, nothing was made clean. Again, that's the picture. So then when we get to verses 23 through 28, we get the reality. We get the antitype is the fancy word people use. Um, the, Christ is the reality to which those initial sacrifices and things were pointing to. Now we have the real, true, heavenly sanctuary that Jesus has come into, and he's cleansed it with his blood and brought his better sacrifice into that place. He's entered the heavenlies, procured forgiveness of sins and cleansing. And it's a once-for-all event, okay? This is actually the final piece that he wraps up in, uh, in chapter 10. But Jesus' once-for-all sacrifice was greater than what we got in the Old Testament. And um, we're going to see that in chapter 10. So we'll, let's jump into chapter 10. Again, we're finishing up, going really quick. But one of the key ideas here is that in order to draw near to God, the worshiper must be pure. Obviously, we know that that is just not the case. 
the author in the book of Hebrews really doesn't spend a lot of time talking about the fact that there's the depravity of man, that, that no one is, is worthy or holy other than the Son of God. But it's implied in so many different places. It's just kind of a baseline assumption. It would be like us trying to approach the sun. And, I mean, we wouldn't even get remotely close before we're just completely consumed, completely burned up. That's some of the language that's even used here at the end of chapter 10 um, for the judgment that we would face if we reject the sun. But all that to say, we need something. We need someone to be able to enable us to come into God's presence, just like approaching the sun. We, we need something that's going to allow us to actually get there. And until we are made perfect, until we are made pure, we can't approach God. Again, the irony uh, from the old law is that the ceremonies and rituals that were designed to cleanse actually became reminders that they weren't actually cleansed or they weren't fully cleansed yet. It came around each year and it would be Another sacrifice, as the author points out, it's an annual reminder that, hey, there's still more sin to deal with. The blood of animals could cover it, but not take it away. That would be reserved until Christ came and brought this with this promise with the, the new covenant. So notice what he does here with this quote. He has a quote from Psalm 40, and he puts this in Jesus' mouth, as if Jesus is saying this. The point in Psalm 40 is that God wasn't interested in animal sacrifices anyways. At the end of the day, he doesn't want to just cover sin and forgive sin. He wants somebody who just does his will. He wants somebody who obeys him in the first place. And he puts these words in Jesus' mouth to show that Jesus comes and says, hey, I know you don't want sacrifices. I'm going to obey you. So on the one hand, Jesus, yes, did, obey, did offer himself as a sacrifice in our place. He didn't, des- he didn't deserve to be there. Um, but He came before God and says, God, I know you want someone to obey perfectly, and I'm going to do that. You've given me a body, a physical body for me to carry this out and live this out, and I'm going to do it. I'm going to obey you. I'm going to do your will. Obedience for Jesus, again, uh, involved among many things, his obedience to death on a cross. And in so doing, by obeying God, he has done God's will, and we have been made holy. What he has done for us allows us to be made holy. So Jesus offers this perfect once-for-all sacrifice. He sits down at the right hand of God. The other priests were continually standing up and doing and serving because they weren't finished. But Jesus, because he offered the one perfect sacrifice, is able to sit down. He's done. Now, notice, too, that we've come full circle to where we started. Jesus sitting down at the right hand of God. That's what we see in chapter 1. And at the end of this, this major teaching section in Hebrews, we're seeing we're, we're back there. And he wraps up, as I pointed out earlier, that by quoting from Jeremiah 31, which again bookends the section. But, but catch this. Not only do we have true forgiveness of sins in Jesus' new covenant, we have the internalization of God's law and a closer relationship with God because of our purification from sins. So now... Because of our great high priest, we too, like Jesus, and really only because of Jesus, we can say that we will obey obey God. We will do what he wants. Um, Now we can really please him, not because of who we are inherently, but because of our high priest and what he's accomplished for us. If we have this kind of priest, high priest, 
with this kind of sacrifice and bringing these promises to us, we don't need anything else. There's no longer any sacrifice for us because we have, we have everything we need. So that's where this author is going to go. He said, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place, and since we have this great high priest over God's house, here's three exhortations for us um, work through, into, through this passage. Let's draw near to God. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess. And let us consider one another to stir up one another to love and good works. Or if you, if you want to say it this way, draw near to one another because of who Christ is. So in the section, he's wrapping up. He recapitulates some of the main points that he's discussed along the way, uh, not in propositional terms per se, but in action items and response terms. Drawing near to God is also continuing the idea of stay on the journey, stay on the path toward God. Don't go, don't move away from him. Continue moving toward him. One of, his, one of the things he said throughout this book is hold fast to the hope that you profess. Again, be like Abraham, who imitate Abraham. He had faith, to re, and he had patience, and he inherited the promise eventually. There was a lot of trou- uh, trouble, hardship, years that went by, but he was able to inherit that. As I said earlier, the conclusion here, let us hold fast to confession. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Essentially, draw near to one another, like I said earlier. Um, I've said, I think every time, every conclusion that I've had in chapter in week one and two, you can't do this by yourself. Don't think you're going to live the Christian life in a way that pleases God apart from his community that he's established. This is one of God's good gifts to you. And this is one of the things that God, as a priest, has done, is he's sanctified these people who are also priests, and you can come together, be together, help each other on this road. Um, the focus here, if, if you go back to chapter 3, it says, cha- chapter 3, verse 1, consider Jesus. Same verb is used here. It's not just, uh, you know, hey, take a glance over there and uh, check it out as you drive by. No, it's focus your attention on Jesus. See who he is. Consider his life and everything he's done for you and live in light of that. Now, that same word is used here, consider one another. Uh, It's a little bit interesting translation to translate just because it comes across a little awkwardly in in English. But we really are to consider one another, how how to provoke one another into love and good works. So we are to be considering one another how in one another's lives we can see love and good works generated. One of the authors I like said, um, consider one another so that outbursts of love and good works may be taking place to and among you. Uh, Because again, you're not going to make this. You're not going to do what the author is suggesting you do here. Holding fast, being faithful and patient in order to inherit the promises that Christ is bringing for us in the new covenant. You are not going to make that. You're not going to hold fast to your hope if you're all by yourself. You can't do it. And that, I, I think in my study this week, this is one of the things I've, I've appreciated so much and, and probably learned is, the, yes, the author is saying don't run back to Judaism, but he's got a much broader perspective on his overall message. Jesus has given you great 
and awesome benefits and advantages. You are stupid if you go somewhere else to find advantages like that. No one else is going to give you these kind of advantages. No one else is going to give you something this good. There's a temptation to feel like the world has something better to offer, that money or pleasure or houses or cars or whatever it may be. In our culture, it's consumerism. It's, it's materialism. We think these things are going are gonna to satisfy us. But, but listen, one of the things that, she, that, that the author does here is when, in pointing out that, that these Levitical priests serve in what is earthly, but Jesus serves in what is heavenly. He's keeping our eyes on, man, this world it's just, it's not reality. The reality is there at the, at the throne of God where Jesus is. That's what we need to fix our hope on. All this other stuff, man, we can just let it go because of the benefits and the advantages we have in Jesus. So one of the things that they're saying, uh, we, I need, I'm wrapping up here, but he says that we're not supposed to uh, neglect meeting together. And uh, again, I, you know, I feel like I just, I want to say this Real quickly, the, the point is not eat, go to church. The point is be involved meaningfully and significantly with brothers and sisters in Christ. Because, again, the author has the farthest thing from his mind is that you come to a building once a week and say, yeah, I went there. No, the, the whole idea is you're not going to hold fast your hope. You're not going to hang on to Christ until the very end unless you're doing it together in a significant way with brothers and sisters. So don't miss that. Okay, at the end, we have, we have two things left. He finishes with a warning. It's interesting because in verse 18, he says, there's no, if there's, you know, where forgiveness of sin has been accomplished, there's no longer any sacrifice for sin. You don't need anything else. We have the perfect sacrifice, the, the, the sacrifice from God, the high priest who's perfect. He's given us everything we need. There's nothing left. And so then he can turn around and say, yeah. And so for those of you who decide to walk away from it, there's nothing left. Jesus has procured forgiveness of sins for you. He's taking your penalty. You walk away from it, there's nothing left. You're paying the penalty. Don't take that lightly. We got to make it to the end. It's great that you're here today. Uh, I think I've said this every week. It's great that you're here this week. Um, I'm glad for that. I'm glad, for, I, I'm, glad I'm here. I, I mean, I need this message to myself. But what about five years from now? What about 10 years from now? Are you going to be the seed that, that springs up out of joy, but then is choked out because of the cares, the pressures, the tribulations of this world? Don't be that person. And then he finishes by saying, but look what you've endured in the past. In light of what you've done in the past, hold fast to Jesus in the present because your promise is coming in the future. So let's be like these people. What does he say there? Don't throw away your confidence because you have a great reward. All right, let's pray. Jesus, we are not going to make it apart from you. It's so easy to just throw away our confidence, throw away our hope, run to something else. Give us that resolve, God, from your person, from your Holy Spirit, to have that long endurance that long obedience in the same direction, to pursuing you, to embracing your promises and receiving them, receiving our inheritance in you at the end. We pray this, that your name would be praised and honored.